The rocket fuel and the radioactive iodine have been on the Bunsen burner for six hours. All I have in my head now is a radioactive sludge that's boiled down to nothing at the bottom of this thing. And I'm imagining spider web like cracks in the bottom of the beaker, right? That the flame's going to get through. It's going to ignite the rocket fuel and boom, Baltimore's first dirty bomb. Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. Today, I sat down with Mark Glimsher, the president and CEO of the world-renowned Pace Art Gallery. Mark and I chat about everything from his home life to his dreams of being a scientist and even talking his way out of being expelled from Harvard. The internship with Mark begins now. Let's start with some context about you. You're a world-renowned art dealer and run a famous contemporary art gallery. Can you talk a little bit about your job and what you do on a day-to-day basis? I run the Pace Gallery, which is, uh, as you say, a contemporary, modern and contemporary art gallery. We represent about 92 artists. So for them, we act as talent agent, publicist, manager. We manage seven galleries around the world, which we program on a monthly basis. So there we're acting like kind of production studio and movie theater. And we both manage artists' careers, manage collectors' collections, and it's kind of a full service industry in the art world. Can you talk about some of your major accomplishments as a member of the art world? Mm, Major accomplishments. Okay, well, I have just opened a 75,000 square foot new headquarters in New York. I'll work backwards, which uh, has a lot of amazing features to it and uh, things going on. We've represented some of the great estates, Casso Estate, the Rothko Estate, the Calder Estate. We've worked with some of the great artists of the 20th century, from Dubuffet to Oldenburg to Robert Rauschenberg. And we're working with some of the most important young emerging artists as well. We also have the first art and technology program Benny Gallery, which we are proceeding to think about new models of how that's going to work. I myself have curated about 25 exhibitions through my life. I've either designed or edited or written a couple hundred catalogs and books and about four or five major books. And I have five children, which is really a major accomplishment. Can you talk about your process of putting together a gallery or kind of writing a book about art? That's a very long and slow story, how to put together a gallery. It's not a uh, thing that some bunch of people sit down in a garage, come up with an idea, and we're going to put it all together. My father started the gallery in 1960, and he was a painter. His father died, and his family was out of money, and so they told him he had to get a real job. And it starts really just with relationships with artists. That's the root in. Sometimes people begin an art gallery by working at the auction house and having relationships with collectors. These galleries generally fail eventually. And the ones that stay are the ones that are artist-centered. So it's a very long process of relationships, building relationships and trust. 
So you've got the artists, you've got the collectors. And what you are is the person who moves between those two sides and makes one understandable to the other. The artists have to understand the realities of how their art's going to get out into the world, bought, sold, etc. The collectors have to understand what this artist's mission and vision is and why it's of historic importance. So it's a long process, and I couldn't break it down into kind of strategic steps. It's a kind of life decision to be in the art world, to be surrounded by the artists. And that takes you in many unexpected twists and turns. And so the people with a real strategy and a real plan generally don't fare so well in the art world. Can you talk about any of those like twists and turns that you kind of experienced in this world? Yeah, so I'm the son of the founder, right? So that uh, right there is a big twist and turn. I was in college, wanted to be a scientist and kept getting drawn back towards art history. My twists and turns are my life story, so I'm going to go right to it if that's okay. I think it's a good way to lead into understanding something like, how do you become an art dealer? Okay, which is very few people plan on it. So I didn't plan it. I was planning to be, you know, a marine ecologist. But I was always drawn back into art history as that's how I grew up. I grew up with the surrounded by the artists. And when I got out of college, I went to work for my father much against his better judgment. He was not thrilled with that idea. And that was my first big opportunity to be part of the process because I was working on a show, uh, The Sketchbooks of Picasso, which had never been seen before. And it wasn't that many years after. It was 1985 when we started working on it, which was not that long after the Picasso estate was settled in 1979. History kept drawing me in. The impact that artists have on the way we see and the way we think and the way society progresses kept drawing me in. Then, of course, I'm working for my father. So at the same time as I'm being drawn in, I'm trying to figure out how to kill my father, which is a totally natural thing to do. Okay, Which, by the way, is illegal in the state of New York. I have researched it. So would go to work at the gallery, then I would quit, then I'd go back and I'd quit. I, once I went back to graduate school, I went to Johns Hopkins Medical School to study immunology and vaccine design. Because why not? Everybody needs a hobby. And then I just kept coming back. As they say in The Godfather, they just sucked me back in. But in this case, that's not true because I sucked myself back in because my father was so happy to not have me there. Anyway, would always draw me back in was my relationship with the artists. You know, artists are trying to do something impossible, this impossible life. You know, we all have practical things we have to do in our life. You know, get up, we got to go get the food, find the shelter, and live a life, okay? The pattern of that for centuries and centuries is that you pattern your life around your practical needs, right? So when we get up, go to a job, and come home, it's patterned after what is our practical reality. When an artist gets up and goes to the studio, she or he, because sometimes there are men artists too, 
are defying that practical reality of life. They're going to go and put effort into doing something that there is absolutely no reason for anyone to think that it's going to put food on their table. In fact, if they do think it's going to put food on their table, they're going to fail. Like, absolutely. And this is true for all kinds of artists. But for painters and sculptors, visual artists, it is incredibly true. They have to work harder, longer. They have to torture themselves to create something that if they imbue it with value, like, I know someone's going to like this. It's going to be colorful. It's going to look nice on their wall. If they do anything like that, if they do anything that we consider based on that practical realities of life, their art is going to be crap and they are going to fail. So they have to take this dream that any normal person would say, that's the dream of driving, you know, that's the Thelma and Louise, okay? Drive your car off a cliff. That's the dream. And they have to go work at it every day. Now, this is obviously something that we kind of all hold up as an amazing you know, model, right? Follow your dreams, follow your dreams. Well, we've all heard that, but this is a fairly new idea. And that idea comes from artists. And particularly, it comes from artists at the start of the 20th century, or at the end of the 19th century, I should say. So this idea of being the person who could mediate between those dreams and reality has always been the thing that drew me in. Because if I can facilitate somebody's ability to completely follow a dream and yet not starve to death in the gutter, okay, then anything's possible. And all the amazing things you see around you every day in your life, whether it's buildings, political movements, ideas, it's all because someone dreamed it up. And you know, that to me is the substance of the most human thing there is. So I kept getting drawn back into the possibility of being the person that makes those dreams a reality. So you were born in New York in 1963 to Mildred and Arnold Glimsher with one older brother. What was life like at home for you? Life was strange. My parents were, at one hand, a very like old-fashioned couple. And on the other hand, they were, because they were from fairly traditional Jewish families who had both gotten off the boat in Boston rather than New York, but they were immersed in Andy Warhol's, you know, New York. So on the one hand, you know, we got up, we went to school, we had a, you know, we lived in a very small apartment on 77th Street. My brother and I shared a room. But be exposed to the kind of craziest side of the 60s in New York. That being, you know, the world of Andy Warhol or the world of some of the other pop artists or the super philosophically intense minimalist artists. And these are people who would end up at our dining room table. And my father was, is extremely intense. If you were nine years old at the table and you did not contribute to a conversation with, you know, Robert Irwin, who's one of the most brilliant artists in the 20th century, we were going to hear about it. 
So we would get taken to museums every weekend. My father would proceed to sell us, every, me and my brother, everything in the museum. My mother would trail behind kind of cleaning up the art historical facts that he got sort of wrong. <laughs> and uh, it's, my mother's an art historian. So we were completely immersed. We would have to do that on Saturday, and on Sunday we'd have to draw. We'd sit around the kitchen table, set up like a still life, and we'd have to start drawing. And my father would point to a line and say, well, where is that? I'm like, uh-uh, I'm just trying to draw an orange. He said, where's that line on the orange? Draw what you see. Draw what you see. My God. So we took up photography, my brother and I, so we could get out of drawing and painting classes every weekend. My brother, by the way, ended up becoming the head of neuroscience at NYU. So he knew how to veer off and stay veered off. Okay. But anyway, it was an incredible childhood. All kidding aside, it was traveling all over the world, you know, being exposed to all kinds of amazing creative people. And that very much defined the level that we felt we had to shoot for. Now, part of it is good old fashioned Jewish guilt. Okay. For sure. You know what I'm talking about? Like excel or die, excel or humiliate your family is more like, you know, so there's that. But there's also, you know, the raw energy of people who are excelling around you that draw you up higher. You know, sure, a lot of uh, psychiatry bills that come along with it. I admit it. But was it worth it? I would say so. Can you talk about any specific values or kind of goals that this intensity that your family brought to you kind of gave you? Well, it certainly gave me the goal to do something no one had done before. You know, I felt like if I, excelling was not quite enough, that kind of true originality was being demanded. So in any conversation, you would sit and, you know, how do you make a contribution to this conversation that someone hasn't made already? Okay, now that kind of path towards originality, I don't know if you're born with it or your parents beat it into you or some combination of both. Sometimes those two things are in opposition, okay? If your parents are like, I want to see straight A's, like I never, I never had any of that. I want to see straight A's. I, want, I did have that. Don't, don't get me wrong. But when I didn't get an A, which was almost always, it was okay because I did something original, okay? So I didn't get an A, but I did start my own like marine biology class in high school, for instance. So. While there is this urge for excellence, you know, as they say, perfection is the enemy of the good. Excellence, which I'm a huge fan of, don't get me wrong, is sometimes the enemy of originality. Because originality comes out of a little bit of a mess. Not for me, it's us. And I think for a lot of people. Some people find originality out of perfection and perfect excellence, but I think that's a little rarer. So those are the competing values. We also had the value of not being an asshole very much taught to us, okay? So we grew up with Nixon, with the Vietnam War, with, you know, and it was, we, we obviously grew up with, not obviously, but we grew up with a kind of, you know, liberal East Coast, morality, 
but also the sense that if you did something to somebody that was the result of a lie, deceit, a lack of integrity, whatever, to benefit yourself, that there was no greater kind of sin than that. And that if you did not demonstrate kind of perfect integrity, this was going to bring unbearable shame to the family. Like no one would, no one would ever recover. So that is another one that is not quite as strong today as it might have been in the 60s and 70s. Not quite as pervasive. There's a little more like, you know, that was clever of you, even though you screwed somebody over. So we'll kind of give you a gold star for cleverness and try not to screw someone over the next time. That is something that we were never exposed to. That integrity piece is key in the art world because there's no rules in the art world. It's the world's last great unregulated market. It's the last truly kind of honor-bound system, economic system. And it's a multi-trillion dollar marketplace. And it's full of, there are plenty of crooks in the art business. I don't know if you've heard that or not. But um, <laughs> it, is, it is a place where that kind of honor system gets tested. Yeah, values, good thing. Do you have any uh, stories with liberal art people that you talk about? Any specific stories that kind of changed you or that you feel are really important? I mean, the stories are about understanding the pursuit of artists. One of the great stories, when I was 13 years old, wasn't great. Great story now. It wasn't great then. You kind of have to understand somewhat about these artists for these stories to sound to really be understandable. But there's an artist named Jean Dubuffet. And Dubuffet was the most contrarian artist of the 20th century. He's the guy. So if you see like graffiti or childlike painting being made by any artist, it's all because of this post-war French artist named Jean Dubuffet, who drew like a child and made these super childlike, you know, he studied the drawing of children, the drawing of insane people. John Dubuffet was like the biggest rebel after Picasso of the 20th century. And he believed in everything should be upside down in culture. He created a phrase called art brute. Okay, so we would go to his studio when I was a kid every year. And we had to call him Maître, which means master. And he was one of the most famous artists. He is one of the most famous artists of the 20th century, for sure. And we would walk in, he was this little hunched over guy. And his studio had beehives on the door. So he had to walk through like a cloud of bees to get into his studio. So about three weeks before we would go to France, my brother and I would start like getting hives or pretending to be sick to hopefully be left behind, right? But it never worked. So we got dragged every year and we had to go into the studio. Yes, Matzva, yes, Matzva, this, that, or the other thing. And he had all these paintings lined up around the outside of the, his, his studio. And he said to me, you know, which is the best? Oh, I'm shaking. You know, I'm, I'm 12 years old or something like that at this point. I didn't know this was going to be my art, first really great art dealer lesson. And I'm walking around and I, and my father's like looking at me like I better, you know, say something really intelligent. And I said, this one, Metzvah. He said, why? Why that one? And I said, it's the most beautiful. And this is the dirtiest word you can say. 
And I, as it, as the word came out of my mouth, I knew it. Okay, you don't say beautiful to Jean Dubuffet. That, that's like saying, that's the worst possible adjective you could use in that studio. He comes over to me. He's about four foot 11 and he, he's hunched over with a stick and he takes his cane and he hits me across the back of my legs as hard as he can. I'm 12, maybe I was 11. I start crying. Okay. I'm standing there in the middle of the studio. I was shaking from the bees to begin with. I knew something terrible was going to happen. Happens every year. Someone gets yelled at. Usually it was my brother. Okay. So he hits me across the back of his legs as hard as he can. He said, try again. So I'm crying. I'm like, I like it because it's the ugliest. And he came over. He patted my face. Good boy. Good boy. And that was my first lesson being an art dealer. And it went from there. And what was your takeaway from that lesson? My takeaway from that is the same thing. If you have something to say, it better illuminate something that was previously dark. It better bring understanding in a way that understanding doesn't already exist. To repeat anything that's been said a hundred times, you know, don't even open your mouth, okay? It's not even worth saying. Your job is to expand people's perception, not just reinforce the perception they already have. And that is a critical tool for anybody who wants to be in the arts. And is that just something for people in the arts or is that something that you believe everyone should kind of live by? I believe if it's in you, you got to do it. If that's not in you, some people are listeners, better listeners than talkers. And that's fantastic. Some people help you understand yourself. That's fantastic. Some people, what they're here to do is help you understand something you didn't understand before. Okay, these are teachers of all kinds. If you're a teacher of any kind, okay, that could be a movie producer, that could be an art dealer, that could be a first grade teacher, that could be a politician, you're here to open and expand people's minds. So yes, for a whole bunch of us, that is our job. So now that we kind of talked about your family life, let's talk more specifically about your time in high school. Oh, high school. I went to the Dalton school. Okay. I started at Dalton in third grade. So in third grade, you're eight years old. So the year is 1970. Okay. All right. So that means I went to the Dalton school in the 70s. Okay, so I don't know if that means anything to you, but it means that it was the time when Dalton was pushing the progressive education agenda pretty much for the whole country. Some people will argue that point, but it was definitely the leading progressive private school in the country and it had an agenda. So we were extremely lucky because we were at the cutting edge of, you know, the way education was done. So what does that mean? It means that everything that you do now in high school, everything about your individual projects, you know, the way that you get to push into the things that you're most interested in, the way that you don't just get everything is not just testing, et cetera, et cetera. Everything you're completely used to now, we were the only place where that was happening. So I got the benefit 
in the 70s of the education that people got kind of starting in the 90s on. So I was able to kind of craft my own sort of curriculum a little bit. Like I said, I uh, started a class in marine biology, which I taught kind of with the help of the science department, but it was an actual class. Everybody got actual credit for. And, you know, I did Model UN. There was no Model Congress at the time. It was just Model UN. And my brother and I were quite kind of politically volatile. We would, anything that was kind of an accepted political idea, again, it's the mid-70s, okay? So any accepted political ideal, we would rebel against. So, you know, we were in Hebrew school. All we'd talk about was the rights of the Palestinians get kicked out of Hebrew school every Sunday. And it was that kind of environment. So I was very politically involved. I was a terrible, like, nerd. So that meant, you know, I had all these girls who wanted to be my friend. I was a perfect friend to girls. But it was super intense. No one, everyone took it very seriously. I did drama. I did art history in high school. And I did a lot of science. And we were very intensely interested in philosophy and the politics of the kind of leftist politics. We're very central to kind of what everyone was talking about. It was not just like a fun time. It's the 70s, big drug culture. There was, you know, people were doing every kind of drug imaginable in high school. Their parents were too. This was Dalton. Okay. So we, me and my nerd friends uh, rebelled against that idea. We thought, oh my God, you know, everyone's doing smoking pot, cocaine. They're a bunch of morons. Okay. And they're just getting dumber. So we were going to rebel against that by kind of religiously taking mind expanding hallucinogenic drugs every Sunday. So that's, you add up those number of Sundays. That's, that's way over the limit. Okay. That puts you into the full, like, insanity zone. I don't advocate for that. Now people are taking hallucinogenics in a super serious and interesting way. Okay. They go in these controlled situations, ayahuasca ceremonies, all these things. And, <laughs> you know, that is a intelligent way to, like, benefit from the kind of perspective that one gets from a hallucinogenic experience. I definitely do not advocate dropping acid every weekend. That's really stupid. And going like to the South Bronx, which is what we did. Okay. Very risky, dangerous behavior. Totally against it. However, a little mind expansion is not a bad thing. You know, that intensity of my seeking was definitely spurred on by that. What's the downside? The downside is that I had no focus. I was an art historian in the morning. Then I was a biologist in the afternoon. Then I was, and eventually, you know, when you're 16 and 17 and you still have absolutely no focus, you know, we've been told by our parents, oh, you can do anything you want. This is horseshit. You cannot do anything you want. There's a few things you can do well. Maybe one, maybe a few. And figuring that out and getting going on it is a good thing. The idea that you don't have to make any decisions. 
make decisions. Be in high school, be like, like I did, like I finally did, finally, and like I am going to be a marine biologist. Now I was not, but the decision was great to go do it and press into it. So the drug culture definitely kept you feeling like you were brilliant, even though you were accomplishing nothing, which is terrible. That is, that is really how that drug culture expresses itself through, you know, rich, privileged kids who have nothing to worry about. And this is why that's such a lethal combination. Okay. Which is being self-satisfied, being privileged, you know, all these things get you so that you don't get your engine started because you think you're so great. Okay. This phenomenon is fanning out past in your generation, older than you. The millennials had this problem fanning out deeper into society past just the rich and privileged kids. Anyway, yeah, a little mind expansion is a great thing, but so is focus. And I was definitely high on one and low on the other. I got smart in high school, but I didn't make much headway till the end of high school when I really focused in on one thing. In modern society, like you said, it's a lot of people are struggling to focus on one thing. How do you pick that thing that you want to focus on? You pick it and make a mistake like I did. I picked science. I was wrong. It didn't matter. That was okay. You've got to know when you are wrong. When any old person like me will tell you is it doesn't really actually matter that much what thing you pick as long as you were able to really lean into it. It would have been okay if I picked I would have been a good scientist. I just couldn't lean into it. And I could in the art world. But all my science experiences benefit me enormously. But it was right on the edge. It was on the edge of being too indecisive, too much back and forth. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. You need to find a balance of being creative, being open to possibilities. And then you have to kind of follow your instinct to bear down on one thing. And then as soon as you say to yourself, oh, this is boring, I'm done with this, you have to keep doing it. This is a very tricky thing, but this is the key. And knowing when to quit and move on is very hard to pin it down. But it's not because you got bored where you realize that all the people in that field were assholes because all the people in every field, okay, when whenever you start working and doing something, like these people are all idiots. That's everywhere. It isn't any of that. It's probably because there's something else saying to you, this is where I want to go. That voice is the voice that credibly can make you quit. Not the voice about how terrible this thing is that I'm doing. We all hear that voice. Like, you start doing something, you really get into it, and it gets terrible immediately. Because <laughs> it was great as an idea, but the practical reality of it sucks. So quitting something for that reason is a disaster. Quitting something because you're like, you know what? It's art. It's this kind of other life that I really want. I just have to like admit it. That's what I want to do. Or it's this kind of life, or it's, you know, serving people rather than serving myself. 
There's some voice that comes. But once you make that switch, you make that jump, you're going to have the same thing. You're going to be the same idiots that you had to deal with in the leather thing. So this is a hard lesson to learn, and you learn it by doing it wrong. There are warning signs to watch out for. And one of them is, I did this summer job. I really wanted to do it. It's the thing I've always wanted to do my whole life. The people were jerks. The work was boring. Maybe I don't want to do this after all. That is definitely a sign to keep doing it, unfortunately. How so is that a sign to keep doing it? That is a sign to keep doing it because if that's your signal to leave, that you're surrounded by a bunch of idiots, they're doing it all wrong, turns out it's boring, turns out there's a lot of grunt work, that they're working you too hard, that's everywhere. If you don't want to do that, then you don't have any options. You won't accomplish anything if that is going to be your criteria for quitting. A hundred percent. I know it because I've done it. I've quit this job four times. This is the greatest job anyone ever had. I have the world's best job. But it had all those things attached to it. How do you overcome those things? How do you make it better? First of all, you've got to have a sense of humor. Okay? You cannot take everything so seriously. When you go to work and everything sucks, you've got to laugh about it a little bit. And how do you laugh about it? Because you know this is a universal condition. Okay? And because you go home and you don't soak in all your, like, anxiety. You know what humor is? Humor is a bad situation combined with a serious amount of time. And when something bad happens, there's some time passes, then it becomes funny. Okay? So all you have to do to survive is you have to compress that amount of time. You have to have it be just a few hours before it becomes funny instead of a few years. So you've got to keep your sense of humor and you can't get what a lot of us do is we see a matrix of people around us. This person's doing this. That person's doing that. You start to understand everything in terms of all the people around you. And when you're feeling good, you do it too. This person thinks I'm a success. That person thinks I'm a genius. You got to try and clear away the haze of all the other people in the world. Okay? Because your only directionality and your only good instincts and your only everything, uh, your good decisions come because they're based in your own sense of being. This is also a very hard thing to get to. People you look at and say, God, that person has such great instincts. You know, they make great decisions, accomplish things. They know when it's a success, it's going to be a success. They know when it's going to be a failure. Those are people who are not constantly checking everybody around them. What does this person think? What does that person think? What does this person do? They are pretty anchored. And some of them are a little like semi-autistic, okay? They who like, you know what I'm talking about. They kind of blank out all the people around them. And that sometimes gives, not semi-autistic, you know what I mean. That gives them a kind of advantage because they're not constantly being steered by everybody's opinion. So. My personal recommendation to anyone who wants to get anchored in their own being and hone their instincts is, for me, it's meditation. 
That's what meditation does. If you're a meditator, you do not get whipped around by everybody's opinion around you. But you just spend a little time kind of in a de-excited, calm state a couple times a day. And that helps. There's many other things that help. Any ritualized thing in your life that you do pretty much helps you anchor back into yourself. When you get super excited or super upset about what somebody else thinks, you're starting to go off the road. I think that's the the best piece of advice that I've gotten in this entire process. <laughs> okay, that's good. I mean, this is really important, but like I took me till I was 50 to learn this because I have like a guru wife and she's totally calm and inside herself. Nobody can sway her in any way. She knows what she thinks. It's fine. Someone else thinks it's something else. That's okay. And if you learn whatever technique it takes you to learn to listen to yourself, Growing up, my parents were like, just be yourself. Just be yourself. You're always performing. You're always on. And I was like, what, what? I don't even know what that means, be yourself. And I didn't think they knew either. It's just something people say. But they say it because it's true. There is something that is yourself. Finding it is like your whole life's project. But I'll say this. Sooner rather than later, okay, we're on the clock with this life. No pressure. This isn't about freaking out like, oh my God, I've got to get this done or that done. But you can't pretend at any time in your life, just because our life has become so comfortable in this world. When you were eight or nine and living in a tent made of animal skin in some savanna somewhere in Central Asia, you knew you were on the clock, okay? You knew you had to get stuff done. You had to figure out how to do things. You had to make some decisions. You have to remember that. Go back into our ancient memory and remember a little bit. Like, we're here to get something done. And getting in touch with this, like, sense of who you are and not being dissuaded by tons of outside influences, the sooner, the better. It still takes a while. I'm a late bloomer. Okay, some of us are, but definitely the sooner the better. Let's kind of loop back to uh, okay. high school again. Oh God! So, can you talk about any any mentors that you had and how they kind of helped you deal with social pressure or get through school? I had an art history teacher who was a very centered person. I also had a ceramics teacher like that too, and you know, I guess they kind of taught me those lessons as well they were very happy with themselves, with their lives. We look at our teachers and we can see some of them are pretty miserable. And that is, once you're in high school, that's relevant. Like, you're looking at these people, you know, and they've made a decision, they've made an interesting decision to be a teacher, right? Which is a super interesting decision in this world we live in. Because especially a lot of the schools we went to, these are these are extremely gifted people. They've made this decision. Now, some of them are pretty miserable with that decision that they've made. And we know it. And that is an important thing to kind of take note of. But the people who made a decision to be a teacher and are super happy with that decision, that is a like evolved, enlightened, Zen person. It's just his, okay? 
because they could have done a lot of other things. We all know how amazing it is to decide to be a teacher. We all laud those people. So the people who can be a teacher, really good teacher and a really happy person, like watch that person. That's someone who's going to have a great sense probably of you before you're able to because they're so centered. They're so pretty enlightened people. So that is seeking out those kinds of teachers as a mentor. I definitely did that. And they give you little glimpses of what it's like to be kind of living inside yourself, centered and calm. So after high school, you attended both Harvard University, graduating in 1985 with a degree in biological anthropology. Mm. And then you studied biochem and immunology at Johns Hopkins from 1989 to 1991. What Can the hell, right? Okay. So don't try this at home is my warning before I tell this story. Okay. So I went to Harvard. I talked my way into Harvard. You can't do that anymore, by the way. You need to be like all those originality things plus straight A's. I was just the originality things. I didn't have an A to my name, okay, at the time. So I kind of talked my way in and I was in there. Day one, I was going to be some kind of, I was probably going to go to med school. Like every, like we're part of a group, like we're going to med school, we're going to take it from there. Pretty quickly, I go from that to being a member of the Spartacist Youth League. What's the Spartacist Youth League, you might ask? The Spartacist Youth League was founded by Rosa Luxemburg in 1936 in East Germany. Okay. And it's, it's not 30, 1936 it was earlier than that. It was, she founded in the twenties. It was the Trotskyist party. Okay. The Trotskyist youth group. Okay. Now, now wait a minute. Hold on. Trotsky was the cool communist. Okay. He was the nice guy. He believed in democracy and things like that. That's why they put an ice pick in his brain. Okay. So I was a Trotskyist. Oh my God. And that is a very time consuming thing to be. You got to go into like classes at Harvard and disrupt them. You have to go to union meetings. You have to go to the communist party and shout at them and say how corrupt they are. Okay. So that's like a full time job. So then I start like not doing so well. So first semester at Harvard, I got an F a C minus and two B minuses. And I'm like, okay, but probably going to want to like bring that up a little bit. It's not an F in Hebrew, which I decided would be my foreign language. It was an, it was a absent. Okay. I didn't show up because I started showing up to Hebrew. I'm like, I don't know what the hell these people are talking about. I can't understand a word they're saying. And I, I only wanted to go once every two weeks or something like that. That's not advisable. Okay. So I get called into the Dean's office. The Dean's like, you know, I'm like, okay, I don't know. They're going to give me an award or something. I figure, you know, for my originality, my Trotskyist uh, beliefs. And he's like, you know, you're expelled. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? It's like, you got a C minus. You got a C minus, you're expelled. I'm like, what? And you got an F. He said, I didn't get an F. He's like, that counts as an F. Like, hold it. Hold it. Hold it. And. I proceeded to talk my way back in there. Okay. I was like, I'm going to go to a psychiatrist two times a week. I'm going to do this. I, I 
I played the fact that my grandmother died. I made that a big deal. I mean, it was not pretty. Okay. I barely talked my way into that, back into that one. At this point, I realized you probably don't want to get below a B. Like literally, if you get a C average for a year at Harvard, you're out. Okay. So I did address that, but I was still a communist. At which point I started to move towards art history. Okay. How do these things go together? I don't know. I stopped taking LSD. I stopped taking any drugs. I was, you know, very serious. Because if you're a communist, you're not allowed to be a drug addict. Okay. They take it very seriously. This is 1981. This is like El Salvador, Reagan. We, we felt about Reagan exactly the way everybody feels about Trump right now. We just thought it was the worst thing that ever happened in the whole world. So then I start getting into art history. I'm like, maybe I don't want to be a scientist. But I'm working in a laboratory anyway. And the lab work is so tedious and boring that I start thinking about art history. Okay, So here's to the point of making that mistake. Of course, it's tedious and boring. Okay, That's why they call it science. So then sophomore year, I decide I'm really going to freak my parents out. And I've decided I'm a born-again Christian. What? I mean, you might as well take a knife and stick it in your father's heart, okay? If you are a New York Jewish kid like me and say, now I'm a Jew for Jesus. Nicer thing to do is literally take a steak knife and stick it in your father's neck. That's less painful, okay? But I went the born-again Christian route. So now I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be a religion major. I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to save the world. I found Jesus. Oh my God, okay? And I take my entire trust fund and I start a homeless shelter. Okay, it's still there. Homeless shelter's still there. And I'm like getting into it. And I'm maybe I'm going to become pre. Now I'm a religion major. I switched to being a religion major. Okay, great. I read the Bible. I've already read the Quran. I've already read, you know, the Bhagavad Gita. I've read it all in high school already. Now I'm like a Bible expert. I've got to memorize. Anything you want to know? Ask me right now. I've memorized the Bible front to back. Okay, so I can't can't keep being a communist if I'm going to be a born-again Christian, turned out. So I quit that. I joined the other. And I'm a religion major. Now, after a year of that, I start thinking, well, maybe this isn't the best idea. And I'm going to go back to art history. Even though I'm so into this, I'm now really missing out on Harvard, by the way. Okay. Because if you decide you're going to be like a Jew for Jesus at Harvard, you're going to miss all the fun. I highly don't recommend this. But anyway, I did it. And now I go back to being an art history major. Now it's like junior year. I'm trying to convince a girl to like convert. You're not going to do it. Okay. I quit being a born-again Christian. But it's kind of too late now. Okay. I've done art history, biology, and religion. Now it's senior year. I quit being a born-again Christian. And I go to my same friend, the dean, who didn't kick me out. And I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? He's like, I don't know. Let's see. And he starts piecing all my classes together. He says, you could, if you go to summer school, you could be a biological anthropologist, which is the study of primates. Okay? Study of chimps, gorillas, gibbons, etc. And I'm like, fantastic. I'll be a biological anthropologist. My 
girlfriend's an anthropology major. This is all working out great. But basically, the university works very hard to make sure they don't have to have me for an extra year. I graduate. I'm a recovered Bornean Christian communist religion art history biology major. So what do you do when you do that? You go work for your father. Okay. That's what you do. Is that or are they throwing in the loony bin? So I got out of college and I went much to my father's chagrin. I said, I am ready to work at the Space Gallery. And I came to work and I loved it. And I started doing the show, the sketchbooks of Picasso with my friend, Matthew Marks, who I'd gone to Dalton with, who turned in, you know, became a famous art dealer in his own right. And we worked tirelessly on this show. I got my feeling for it. And that girlfriend decides who did medical anthropology, she's going to medical school. So now my girlfriend's going to know more science than me. So I'm like, that cannot stand. Okay. I'm not going to let her make more, no more science than me. So I go and I take a few extension courses to finish my biology major. And I apply to Johns Hopkins Medical School's PhD program, which is 10 people a year go in to do a PhD at the medical school. So it's a biomedical PhD. You don't get an MD. It's the greatest program, the most amazing program because Johns Hopkins Medical School is incredible and you're at the cutting edge of everything. Okay, so I quit the gallery. I go to Johns Hopkins. I'm living in Baltimore. My girlfriend, I get married. I'm 24 years old. You see, I'm a little volatile in my decision-making, okay? So I get married at 24. I get into this program. I start studying vaccine design. I'm in the lab. I'm killing rats. I'm doing all this stuff that you do. And I'm like, can't you get me? Like, I know exactly how to make a, you know, change immunology forever. I decided I figured it all out. And I'm like, can't you get me a, like 10 assistants? And they're like, you weren't a fucking assistant. What are you talking about? Okay. So I'm miserable for the same reason. Like, oh, these people don't understand me. They're not philosophical enough. They're curing diseases that are going to destroy the rainforest because they're, they're about to cure sleeping sickness, which they're still working on. If you cure sleeping sickness, that means you can go into the Congo rainforest, cut it all down and turn it into pasture land. Because right now the tsetse fly kills all the cows. It's the only thing protecting the rainforest. So I have a big fight with them about that. It's not so different from my fights in Hebrew school about the rights of the Palestinians. I just want to get into a fight with everybody. Okay, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, I come up with a design for a vaccine. It requires radioactive iodine and rocket fuel. So what idiot would give me radioactive iodine and rocket fuel? I don't know. Somebody at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine would. Because they deliver me a big old tub of both. And I put a bunch of proteins and antibodies and stuff, and I mix it all together, and I'm going to create the first vaccine for a bacteria. You know, vaccines are for viruses, not bacteria. And I'm going to create a vaccine against pneumonia. And so I mix up a big old pot of radioactive iodine and rocket fuel. Nitrocene, true rocket fuel, okay? Was there actually any science involved? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'd be a billionaire now if I'd finished because now you use a similar process to create Pneumovac, which is the only vaccine against pneumonia. 
but I'm alone. I'm up in the lab on the sense, and I have a crazy professor who's like, go for it, who's about 95 years old. Okay. There was a lot of science behind it. Okay. So I mix it up. I'm like, I'm so tired. I'm like married. And by the way, my wife is pregnant at this time. Okay. She's pregnant. I'm like 26 years old. So I'm like, I'm going to go home and take a nap. I leave the universe. I'm like one hour and I leave the burner on underneath the rocket fuel. So I go home. I'm going to take a one hour nap. It's seven o'clock in the evening. I close my eyes. I open my eyes. It's 3 a.m. The rocket fuel and the radioactive iodine have been on the Bunsen burner for six hours. All I have in my head now is a radioactive sludge that's boiled down to nothing at the bottom of this thing. And I'm imagining spider web like cracks in the bottom of the beaker, right? That the flame's going to get through. It's going to ignite the rocket fuel and boom, Baltimore's first dirty bomb. Okay. So I'm running in my pajamas up the Broadway, which is the main street in East Baltimore. I get up there and sure enough, yeah, it's all, it's smoke everywhere. The whole room's radioactive. I like get the Geiger counter out. I'm like, it's all over myself. I'm like, okay, here's what I can do. I can wrap this thing up in a piece of lead, throw it in the garbage, pretend this never happened. Or I can pick up the red telephone that says hazmat and go through like the decontamination process. So like an idiot, I picked up the red phone. They didn't kick me out, but I did figure that probably this was not the thing for me. Okay. I mean, when they came in with the scrub brushes and the hoses to like hose me down and decontaminate me and make me swallow like jugs of iodine to get the radioactive iodine out of my like thyroid. I was like, you know what? I may not have the temperament for this job. Thank God I did not ignite a dirty bomb in East Baltimore. Okay. It'd still be a no-go zone right now. And so at this point, I decided I would quit my PhD three years in. This was also a mistake. One more year and I, you'd be talking to Dr. Glimsher. I'd still be a great art dealer, but you'd have to call me Dr. Glimsher, which would have been worth one more year, but I didn't do it. Anyway, at this point, I went back, back to the gallery, back to the gallery, because that's what I do. Somehow, I found the right path. What's the takeaway? I don't know. It's not just talk your way back into things, although that's part of it. It is like the intensity teaches you the most important lessons. If you shy away from the intensity and go for safe, you're never going to evolve. Again, don't try this at home, kids, okay? I'm not advocating that. I am an extreme example of going for intensity. There are great benefits there. Again, I'm an advocate for intensity. I love kids. I need somebody in my home that is the same maturity level as me at all times. That means I have a nine-year-old son right now who's there. I have a 15-year-old daughter. She's already passed me. I have a 29 and a 27-year-old daughter. They're much more grown up than I am. Okay? Now, I have a one-year-old. So I have hope for the future. What do you see your job as a parent is? This was my job as a parent. Everything we just did is what I talk to my kids about all the time. I push them 
to be original. I push them to excel. I push them to know themselves, to not get caught up in anger or disappointment or stress or any of those things. I cry and create an environment that is full of discovery, full of reality and not like fantasy. And where everybody knows the absolute value of a sense of humor and that that allows recovery because our lives are full of like something good than something bad. So we have to constantly be able to recover. Like an athlete, any athlete will tell you that recovery is like the key to success because you overstress yourself and then you need to recover. You need to recover quickly or you're screwed. Rapid recovery is a theme like in life that you have to teach your kids. And the special sauce for rapid recovery is a good sense of humor. Mark, thank you for being here today. Your story was uh, different, still very interesting and uh, very inspiring. Before we close, is there anything you'd like to say or any other stories you want to tell, regardless of takeaway of them? You know, I have to say that I found my way. I'm very lucky. I did find the place I should be. This gallery is now expanding in all kinds of amazing directions. There's an incredible team slash family here that everybody's got an original idea and a new thing that they're doing. And we are enabling that to happen. And that spreads this whole idea of how to live. So I'm very happy that we have this organization. We're now 225 people all around the world. We're just going to keep it going. On the next episode of One Hour Intern, I learned from Rick Rubin. When I had success doing hip-hop music, when I decided to start making heavy metal records, people told me I was insane. Why would you ever make a heavy metal record? You're a hip-hop producer. Then when I had success doing heavy metal records, then I started making country records or comedy records or whatever it was that I was interested in. And every step of the way, I was called crazy by my partners in the music business. I was, why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time? So there'll always be barriers to entry to anything you want to do. And it's the excitement that you could generate in yourself to overcome first those walls within yourself and then those walls outside of yourself. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.